Hello, everyone. Welcome back to I See What You're Saying, the Discipline Listening Podcast. I'm Michael Reddington, and today it is my pleasure to welcome our next guest all the way from London, England, Mr. Graham Drew. Graham has an extremely interesting background where he was very successful in both the worlds of business development and procurement. And he took the lessons that he learned from both sides of the negotiating table, participating in many high stakes, high value negotiations to establish Cognis Consulting. And what he and his team do at Cognis Consulting is fascinating to me. They work with their customers' customers to find out how his customers did during the business development process, during the customer onboarding and acquisition process, and even in maintaining the relationships. So again, he's going to work with his customers' customers to find out what went well, what didn't go so well, what did you like, what did you learn, what would you like to have seen more of, what new opportunities may have been missed or might be on the table, so that he can report back to his customers again and say, hey, here's where you're strong, here's where there's some opportunities, and here's how to continue to focus and develop the relationship moving forward. To me, that is fascinating. That's investigative interviewing at its finest. He and his team also teach advanced listening skills and, not surprisingly, advanced information elicitation skills. I really am excited to share this conversation with you today. Such a great guy, very entertaining, has so many great stories, really, really excited to share this conversation. But before we do, we've got to thank our sponsors first. Please, for anybody interested in learning how to accurately identify what somebody's thinking or feeling in any moment, Based on evaluating their changing emotions in the context of the situation, please head over to humantel.com and enter the code INQUASIVE25 to get 25% off of all of their online self-paced training. It is first in class, best in industry. Dr. David Matsumoto and his team have done amazing work over there. I've taken all of the training myself. I personally vouch for it. Please head over to humantel.com and check out all of the online training that they offer. Also, if you are interested in learning more about emotional intelligence, please head over to Emotional Intelligence Magazine at ei-magazine.com. There you can go through their ever-growing catalog of books, articles, podcasts, interviews, online training, in-person training, and beyond over at emotionalintelligencemagazine.com. And of course, for all of our professional interviewers or somebody like Graham, who has taken and passed the certified forensic interviewer designation himself, please head over to the International Association of Interviewers. That's where you can learn if this is the right fit for yourself or your investigative organization. You can learn more about their online training, their in-person training events, the requirements to join. Of course, you can see their legal updates, any updates in the field of interview and investigation, new programs that they have coming. Of course, the member-to-member communication uh, benefits and beyond. And yes, that is also where you will go to see if you qualify for the certified forensic interviewer designation. And if it is right for you at this point in your career with your career goals. So that is the International Association of Interviewers at certifiedinterviewer.com. So th- once again, thank you to all of our sponsors. Thank you to all of you for taking the time to listen or watch again today. We truly do appreciate it. And now without further ado, I introduce to you, Mr. Graham Drew. Graham, it is so great to finally see you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We've talked a little bit before over email. I'm really excited to start this conversation. I can't thank you enough. Say it one more time. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Michael. And it is a real pleasure to be here and a real pleasure to meet you. Um, As you may know, I'm a big fan of the book. I've now read it three times. 
And I'm sure there'll be a fourth time. So uh, there's so much in it. Fantastic book. Congratulations. I'm a huge fan. Well, thank you very much. I sincerely appreciate that. Thank you. And I look forward to someday reading yours as well, which is a conversation for another day. But I want to get that public peer pressure on the record. (laughs) Thank you for that. (laughs) I am excited to have this conversation. I feel like a lot of there's a big overlap with what we do in a lot of our perspectives, but there's also different ideas and thoughts and applications as well. And not just because we're on opposite sides of the Atlantic Ocean, as we currently speak, but just how we interact with our customers and where we've come from and how we both arrived at where we are. So I'm excited, sort of, you know, the high points. I would really appreciate if you could help us set the context by walking us through your journey for how you got to your current role. I'd love to. Thanks for the question. So, um, so yeah, I guess if I wind the clock back, like uh, more ke- more years than I care to mention, but something like thirty odd years, I guess now, my my entree to the world of of work was uh, in computers, and I was a technician. So I was the guy that you'd call if you ran a data center or you ran a big computing system. I was the guy you called when it all went wrong, and I used to come out and do uh, 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 and do my best to try and make them work, and. Um, and I very quickly, Michael, I very quickly realized I wasn't very good at that. But what I, what I was good at and I really enjoyed was meeting the people. And you quite often met them in quite pressurized situations. You know, if IT systems aren't working, you know, a lot of uh, potential impact to that. So I really enjoyed meeting the people. And that, and that realization that it was more about the people than, than, the, than the IT set me on a bit of a path. And I, and I took a career change into sales. I thought sales looks like fun and, and still in technology. So selling tech, selling outsourcing, selling managed services, predominantly to kind of large organizations, big corporates. And, um, I was okay at sales. I kind of, I was all right at it. And again, it was all about the people for me. I really enjoyed meeting the people. And there's a theme with my career, Michael, which is, uh, sometimes I'll, I'll pivot just because something looks like it's fun. And that was the next move. Uh, a good friend of mine was CEO of a, a financial technology business in, in London. And one day just said to me, forget selling, come and work for me and set up a sourcing, a procurement function. So a global buying function, uh, going to completely the other side of the table, going from selling to buying. And that was a blast. So I did that for a few years, learned just a ton of stuff, work with some really cool people. And then um, almost like a natural development for that was to move into the world of negotiation. So I went to work for a very cool uh, niche consultancy specializing in negotiation and, and work with some just super bright, brilliant people. And now I run my own business, Michael. So now I run my own business and um, clients predominantly come to me when they want to improve sales effectiveness but they want to take the guesswork out of how to do that. So they want to improve the way they sell, sell more, sell better deals, serve their clients better, but based on facts rather than assumption. I love it. And please name your business for us. I don't want to mispronounce. Here's the commercial. Cognis Consulting, C-O-G-N-I-S, Cognis Consulting. You can find me on LinkedIn. Please do. Please look me up. I'd love to talk to anyone who's interested in that kind of stuff. 
And we'll get that again at the end and I'll have all the links in the show notes and stuff as well. But want to make sure if people right now are thinking, well, that sounds cool. Where do I find them? Bam, they know where to go look. Um, that journey is fascinating to me. I love bouncing from one to the next. It's very rarely that I meet someone that says, well, you know, when I was in high school, this is what I wanted to do. And lo and behold, it's what I still do. Like there's some out there, but for the majority of people that I run into, I guess it's my bias maybe because it's me too. We start in one direction, bounce around and and find a home somewhere else. And I imagine that working in the IT as a technician, as a problem solver, working in sales, flipping to the other side of the table in procurement, negotiation, now entrepreneurship, all of that has coalesced to create a pretty valuable and unique perspective on listening and persuasive communication. I mean, what a great question. Of course, of course. So there, there was a there was a key moment, I guess, uh, that kind of aha moment. Well, there were a couple of those aha moments that led to where I am now. And the, in the selling world, I remember a particular situation. I, I was selling sometimes quite large value solutions to customers. You know, uh, in the in this particular one was in the you know tens of millions of dollars and. And I remember I'd worked on this deal for a year and uh, and I didn't, it wasn't successful. I didn't win it. So I, I lost that deal. But I remember right at the end of that, of that sales campaign thinking, I just, yeah, these guys just don't get it. My customer, this, this customer just does not get it. What's going wrong here? And I was really confused and obviously very disappointed. I hadn't, I hadn't closed it. And that set me thinking a lot for years afterwards, set me thinking, I just can't. I can't unpick what's going on. And the aha moment was when I switched to the other side of the table. I remember being a buyer and I was trying to place some, I was trying to buy some software from a very large, well known uh, software vendor. And I, and I was handing them this deal on a plate. You know, I was saying to them, and this was a multi million pound deal, and I was saying to these guys, do this and you've got the business. And, and the do this was, was not difficult, it was kind of all within their means. It, it was not about price. It was some other things. And I said, just do it this way, and it's yours. But they couldn't do it. They just didn't do it. And, and in the end, I awarded the business elsewhere. And that was the moment, piecing together the sales, my failed sales campaign, and trying to award this business. And I just suddenly realized, this is dysfunctional. This buying, selling thing is dysfunctional. So what's going on? And I started unpicking it. And, and in the unpicking, I realized that listening is pretty much at the heart of it. So there's a contextual thing. The buying, selling thing could be adversarial, right? But there's a listening thing. We just, uh, and I was as guilty as anyone, right? I, we, we just weren't listening to each other. And, and I thought, I just wonder if there's something, there's something about not, not appearing to listen, but truly trying to understand where the other person's coming from and what. You know, why are they saying what they're saying in the way they're saying it? Why is that so important to them? And that was the moment. From when I when I had that kind of epiphany, I, I thought, yeah, there's something here. And that set me on a journey and, and off I went. I love it. And two huge things there. First, lots of credit to you for being able to take those events and link them together. Like how many people, myself included, have experienced a failure and chalked it up? Either I took responsibility for it or I blamed it on someone else because let's face it, that's more comfortable and convenient. How could it ever be my fault? Anyway, so we chalk it up. It's a failure. We put it in this bucket over here. 
and we forget about it. It's gone. That was a singular event. Didn't go our way. But for you, not only to hang on to that, not in a negative way, but to learn it, use it as an anchor, build from it, and then correlate it to an opposing event and say, wait a minute, I've now been on both sides of this failed opportunity. I've seen the misunderstanding from both sides of the table. Let's put this together and start solving this problem. That's huge. I don't know how many people would have made that connection. Yeah, it's uh, it wasn't an easy connection to make. There was a lot of pain involved in that, Michael. But I was hugely helped by context. You know, be- because because I took this leap of faith around changing career and just moving from sales to procurement, which not you know I was very fortunate. Very few people get that opportunity, and I was in a position where my personal circumstances meant I could take that risk. You know, a lot of support from my wife and. I may not have been very good at it. It might not have worked. As it happened, it was okay, right? But, but so circumstances played a huge part of that. And just the ability to not have to sort of, um, not have to try and empathize with the other side because I now was on the other side. I was seeing that firsthand. And that is, uh, that just taught me such a lesson about what it's really like to walk in someone else's shoes. And, 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 I now try, like we all do, I guess, we try and imagine what that's like. We try and be empathetic in, in your world and my world, listening. That's really important to try and understand what it's like for the other person. And we can only do our best. Um, but having, having the opportunity to actually do that was, was so powerful. I can imagine it was. And when you think about that sales versus procurement, you mentioned you know there can be that you didn't use the word animosity, but I can't remember the word that you did use, yeah. but yeah, coming from opposite sides of the table. So you have the adversarial was the word that you used. If That's I it. think hard enough, I'll get there. You have those adversarial expectations, which then frames how we potentially listen. If we're going into a conversation thinking this person won't understand, won't see it this way, then we're going to create, we're going to manifest that into reality. So there's a term that you use that I think I'm guessing really helps address that. And I'd love to hear more about where it came from and how you apply it, what it means. I believe you call it outside-in listening. Quite right. Yeah. And hey, I take no credit because I think it's such a it's such a great term. I take no credit for that. So uh, kudos to John Sills at the foundation, who are a great customer experience company. John's a good friend. And I remember explaining to John kind of what I do. So so the way, I, the way I help sales teams is to um, help them see the world through the eyes of their buyer, their customer. And the way I do that is I actually go and interview customers about their buying experience. And I, and I unpick uh, the whole process, start to finish, and, and, and all the objective and subjective things that have happened. And, and you bring those insights back to the sales team. You, you understand what have they done really, really well and they should do more of in that context? And what is, you know, where's their potential for improvement? What could be, what could be done better? And, and I was explaining this uh, to my friend, John Sills, and, and he said, oh, yeah, outside in, outside in thinking. And I thought, oh, that's, that's so cool. I'll have that. I'll, 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 uh, I'll take that. And um, so this is exactly that. It's, it's shifting the, the mindset from, Try to guess. If you think about how most most 
sales organizations go about trying to improve what they do. And this is no criticism, right? This is, this is just a reflection of the position they're in. They live in a pretty low feedback environment. So they, so they know if they win or lose. They know what they're told by their clients when they speak to them, which you know, is pretty tainted in some, because people are trying to make a point in those conversations. Um, they'll look at their CRM data. They'll look at what competitors are doing. And they'll pull all of that together and they'll make some uh, assumptions, some, some, some estimates about what they need to do next. And very often, actually, they make sensible decisions. You know, these are professional people doing a professional job and they're highly experienced. But almost invariably, in my experience, there'll be stuff missing. And the stuff that's missing is the stuff they don't know they don't know. So that's where I come in. I bring in those nuggets of information, those those little bits of information normally that says, did you know when your salesperson did this, that created huge value for the client? You probably didn't even know that, but that created massive uh, 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 value, created momentum, distanced you from the competition, hugely positive. And vice versa, did you know that when you did this thing, that really damaged your position? It slowed things down. It caused... Yeah, some concerns, some, some discomforts, some turmoil even. Did you even know that happened? And it's those things that you can bring back into the organization. And that's why we call it moving from inside out to outside in thinking. I love it. So I have so many questions. I think this is, I, what you do is so fascinating. What's the typical initial reaction you run into if you call on someone, you arrive at their office, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously don't know, but in some way basically say to them, this other company sent me in to get you to tell me all the things you're doing good and not doing well, so I can yeah. go back and tell them if they can sell you more stuff. <laughs> how, how do they initially react to that? Yeah, well, so it's all in the framing of that conversation. So, so people kind of know it's about selling them more stuff. Well, that's not a bad thing. I mean, as I say, I've been a buyer, having customers, having uh, suppliers who want to sell me more stuff. I need that stuff. I need, sure. I need what they've got. So that's not a bad thing. But I would normally describe it as, and this is reality for most of my clients, they don't look at it necessarily as how do I sell more stuff. They gen you know, These are sophisticated, mature sales professionals. They do look at it as how do I serve my client better? Of course, they are primarily interested in velocity of sale, deal value, better qualification. Of course they are. That's their job. But, but the stereotype um, that some people may have of the kind of uh, one-dimensional salesperson, I don't come across that. I come across professional, thoughtful, considered uh, salespeople who want another tool to help them. To answer your question, you know, how do people react to that? How do the customers react to that? Um, if we approach them in the right way, and we spent, you know, I've spent about 10 years learning the right way to approach people to get the best opportunity for people to say yes to a conversation. We approach it the right way. Uh, we enable people to feel like it's them telling their story, which is what it is, right? That, that is exactly what, when I carry out these interviews, it is about them telling their story. 
So we we create the conditions where we say, look, we are genuinely curious about your experience. And of course, the, the, the beauty and the value of having an independent person coming to do that is I carry no judgment, no bias. Well, as little as I can. I certainly carry no baggage. You know, I'm, I'm not vested in the, in, the, in the campaign that was run or the win or the loss. It, that's, that's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in what actually happened. So, so when people understand that I'm approaching this with a, from the perspective of genuine curiosity, real humility, but unlike in this podcast, my job is actually to shut up and not talk too much in those interviews. So I'm, I'm there to ask some questions, but really just to listen. Then um, the vast majority of people are very happy to speak. And the testament to that, by the way, is uh, what normally happens. So it is uh, uh, an interviewee, a customer will say, well, I'll give you kind of like 45 minutes. Like, great. And most, most of the interviews, interviews we do go for at least an hour to an hour and a half at their, at their request. And very often we're asked, actually, come back and ask us more. Or can we send you some more information on email? Or can we have a follow-up in a month? So to me, that's always a sign. You know, if a customer asks, can we talk more? That's, I think we're doing something right. No doubt. No doubt. When they're choosing to spend more time with you, you're, you're doing multiple things right for yeah. certain. I think this is great. I don't want to ask you to give away anything that is confidential. By all means, I know there's like the NDAs with what you do, and I want to be very respectful of all of that. I love what you said is, by and large, you're going in, you're listening. We're going to ask a couple of questions to tee them up, get them rolling. We're going to use genuine curiosity, humility. We're here to learn. You know, just the facts. I'm not vested in the outcome. I'm, I'm just here to gather the facts. Are there, to the degree that you can share, are there questions or opening lines that you typically see to be more successful, encouraging people to begin to open up with you? Yeah. Definitely, and and the, and the, um, I mean, it's just this. This is just so easy. It's so simple, and uh, and even if it's not be, me doing it, I'd encourage anyone speaking to a customer just open up. If you think about what we're trying to do, we're trying to really understand what's important to them. That's my job. Is what's important to them as a as a as a customer as a person, and so the way we always start every interview is we sort of set out a little bit about ourselves and we say, you know, these are the types of areas we're interested in. Maybe, maybe predominantly, you know, how is your buying experience from start to finish? And then we just say, tell us the story over to you. That's it. Uh, uh, and what's fascinating is um, it gives people the, 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 the blank canvas to tell us whatever they want to tell us. And what's really interesting is um, sometimes where they start in those conversations is nowhere near where I thought they might start. If I'd asked a question, you know, if I started those conversations with, "Hey, tell me about um, tell me about the first meeting where the salesperson demonstrated the product," say, you know, well, then they're going to talk about that because they're they're being led very strongly by me. They'll be respectful of the, of the interview type setup. So I'm immediately challenging that challenging them. Sorry, channeling them uh, 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 into a particular place. Whereas that free narrative question, which is, 
just tell me how is it for you? Tell me the story. You know, tell me about your involvement. But then people can start anywhere they like, and they'll go everywhere. And, and, and as we know from your book, where they start might not be the most important thing. And um, But giving people the opportunity sometimes just to assemble the thoughts in their own mind. It's kind of what I'm doing here, really. I, you know, your question has made me think. And, and as I'm speaking to you, I'm pulling different strands and I'm thinking about different aspects of this. And that's what we see customers do all the time. So they'll start somewhere, they'll go off somewhere, they'll come back, but they'll tell the story in a way that makes sense for them. And what that means is, firstly, they feel like they've been heard. Well, they have been heard. Well, that's, that's why I'm in the conversation. But also then, if there are areas we want to probe a little bit more, it gives, we've sort of earned the right a little bit to ask some questions because they felt like they've been heard, they have been heard. Now we can start to just nudge it in a certain direction to understand a bit more about something that might be, you know, really, we're really curious about, for instance, you know. Of all of that, sometimes the big, the hardest part about doing this is not jumping in on you. You're like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so much value there. Probably the piece I love the most is the concept of earning the right to ask questions. Yeah. And I feel like, ironically, perhaps, in investigative interviewing and in sales, we don't realize we have to earn the right to ask people questions. Just showing up and wanting answers isn't enough. People genuinely know that I'm using the information they're giving me for something that I want, which to your point earlier is kind of how business is done. That's not necessarily good or evil. Like you need to buy something. I would like to sell something. If it's a match, awesome. If it's not, okay. But people, it's natural for them to be on the defensive or for them to be a little bit more close to the vest, if you will, with the information that they want to share. When you earn the right to ask questions, those barriers just strip away. And I love just tell me your story. Everything you said, 100% spot on. And just because I can't help myself, they'll often open up with what's the most important thing to them. So if they're really happy about something, there's a chance that comes out first. If they're yeah. really pissed about something, there's a good chance that comes out first. And then in that emotional state, you get to see how they really think and feel, their word choice that they use, all things that I know you know. They're, they're nonverbal. You start getting the story within the story without directing the conversation. And it's an interviewer nerd speak. And I got this from Dr. Ed Geiselman, obtaining the untainted narrative. There you go. I want to get it it. from you without me screwing it up. And then we'll go from there. Exactly. And it's interesting. The something we do see to your point around people talk about the most interesting stuff first. What we see is sometimes people will talk with with what's current. So when we do these interviews, we might be we might be interviewing uh, a customer who's who made the purchase say four eight weeks previous, and and now they're and now they're in now they're using whatever they're using the software the service the whatever it is that that, that, that they're using, and so sometimes in that first bit of the interview they'll talk about you know. Oh, something happened today, a good thing, a bad, whatever it is, relative to that supplier. And that's really relevant. I do, I want to hear that. 
But but I also want to understand what happened eight weeks ago when they were making the purchase, and or maybe or maybe even with some of their their customers I work with, maybe even like two years ago when they were going through the when did that business need first become apparent? When did they first realize, hey, we need to go and talk to some suppliers about helping us with this business need? When what happened then? Who was involved? How did you, you know what was what were you thinking about? How did you approach it? What did you feel about it? What were your concerns? What were you really optimistic about? So those are the types of things that actually we want that whole timeline, or as much of that, because that's all rich information. Um from, from my customer, which is the sales organization, so they can help their customers. They can serve them better in the future. And I do want to highlight that's what it's all about. We're trying to gather, your clients are trying to gather this information so they can do their job better, which then results in better outcomes for their clients. I mean, this is all based yeah. around better outcomes for their clients. Are there particular, and again, I'm not looking for secret sauce. I know NDAs and, and such. Are there particular questioning techniques that have been more successful for you to get from this is what happened yesterday to this was my experience eight weeks ago yeah and we're constantly learning michael so um I, i've got a mantra which is i just learned from the best so i i you know i i'm i'm such a simple guy I, if something if something works and you know, it's it's had it's been stress tested and it's and it's and it's effective. I'll use it. I'll use it. So, uh, so the reason I say that is, as you as you know, I think I may have mentioned a while back. Uh, I've just completed my certified forensic interviewer, uh, uh, Wickland Zalowski training, which has been really interesting, and I'm currently going through training for through uh, clean language interviewing, which is a very different technique. So pioneered by David Grove, so very, very different. So the reason I mention those two things is, I mean, they're fundamentally different things, um, but it's all part of this learning from the best. You take the best from the best and use that. So to answer your question, are there certain sort of questions that give us the best um, answers? There are. And what, and what I'm learning is to try and keep them as untainted as possible. So, so a good a good example, and this is a bit of recency bias for me because just I've been debriefing a customer, one of my customers, a sales organization uh, uh, earlier today. Um, in in their sales process, there was a delay introduced by the customer because some stuff happened and they had to delay uh, uh, the sales, the buying process for a few months, and. Um, so that's it. That was important to understand what happened and why and so on. And of course, the temptation when I'm interviewing the customer is to say, oh, there's a delay. You know, so the temptation will be to ask, well, what was the impact of that? And of course, what I've learned is that's actually not a great question to ask because I'm, I'm projecting on my interviewee that there was an impact and that the word impact normally is associated with something negative. So, um, you know, a, a, a cleaner question would be, so then what happened? And actually, it's all going back to this first part around trying to give all the space to the other person to talk. It, they're not, you know, they're not interested in me. Uh, I am very, very interested in them. So I want to create the conditions where they can 
go anywhere and everywhere that's relevant to them because what's relevant to them is, if, in effect, fact for my customer, the sales organization. What a wonderful way to look at it. What's relevant to them is fact for you. And that's, let's not debate it. Let's not confront it. Let's not worry about it. I mean, we've all heard perception is reality, but I love yeah. the way that you just said that. That's awesome. And congratulations on going through the CFI program. I just wrote down <laughs> clean language. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to check that one out as well. Yeah. Uh, very cool. The, the point you made about our word choice, our delivery, how that can impact their answer, because whether we realize it or not, we convey assumptions or expectations, which then change how they yeah. put their answer together and, and, and deliver it to us. I couldn't help but think as I was listening to you say, well, a different way to ask it would be, and I would love your honest feedback on this, a question I like to use if I'm trying to link somebody from a present event to a past event, contextually, of course, when it's appropriate, is to ask how that aligned with their expectations. Because in theory, once they start talking about their expectations, they're now talking about the previous event. And now that they're talking about the previous events, I could start unpacking that and, and I can start working from there. So I try to use that as a bridge from time to time. I think that's a great question. I think I think that's a, a wonderful question. And of course, so that's going to flush out so much really interesting thinking on behalf of the other person. One of the things that that um that we have to be careful of is the interviewee kind of reverse engineering their thinking a bit. So so that that can happen. And not they won't be doing it deliberately. But it's just, you know, time passes. They've now had experiences now they hadn't had at the point. Um, and, and something we see quite a bit happening is, so all organizations will have a, a buying process. You know, large organizations particularly will have a way that they go about buying whatever it is they're buying, whether that's buildings or uh, commodities for production or software or whatever services, whatever it may be. They'll have a lot of process. They'll have systems, they'll have people doing particular functions, they'll have policies and guidelines and, and process and governance and all those things. And um, the reality is very often the, 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 the actual buying activity will be in line with that process. But it won't necessarily stick to the process in time, just because it wouldn't necessarily be appropriate. It's not because someone's done something wrong or you know underhand. It's just, yeah, the, the, the book says do this, but actually on this occasion, we decided to do something different because it was better for us. That's a perfectly appropriate thing to do. But one of the things we see when we do the interviews is people, when we ask the question around uh, a bit like yours, you know, to have it aligned with expectations or technical journey, people sometimes What's, what's in their mind is the process rather than what actually happens. So that's why, that again, that free narrative at the beginning is quite interesting because what we'll then do is we'll look for, sometimes there are little disconnects, you know, and someone will say this is the story, and then I'll say, well, if I was to use your question, which I think is an excellent one, how does that align with your expectations? They might be take, take me back to a bit of process, a bit of think, thinking that would have happened in a governance meeting that maybe didn't actually happen. Now, that's not because they're being dishonest, far from it. It's just because people's memories don't work in that way and they're doing their best to recollect what happened. And 
But it's quite important for us to know how they actually went about the buying process. Because again, if we understand the difference between you know, what their playbook says and what was actually appropriate for what they needed, then we can serve them better because we can serve up the right intervention, the right content, the right people, the right information. We can serve that up at the right time rather than necessarily spending all our time thinking about the process, which sometimes can be a bit flexible. Oh, most of the time, I would imagine it can be a bit flexible. You know, there's something... Yeah. Government agencies tend to be a little bit more inflexible for lots of understandable reasons. And depending on the product that's being purchased, it has to be a little bit more inflexible. But many times there is flexibility in the process. And the point you make is spectacular. This is how they say they do it. This is what's on the book. This is the the postcard, if you will. But this yeah. is how it really gets done. And if we can learn yeah. that, then we know how, when, where, who to hit them with in order to get to the outcome. And of course, the same happens the other way around, Michael, as well. So, so I should say, you know, when we when we go into these um, engagements with, with sales organisations, the first people I interview are the salespeople, right? Because I want to see they are my kind; they're the people I'm serving here. So I want to understand the world as they see it. So, how did they how did they run the campaign? What's the relationship with the customer? What were the notable events that they saw? What worked for them? What didn't work for them? Where do they think we should be probing for? more clarity and insight. So they're the first people we interview. And of course, salespeople have their own processes. They've got, and, and quite often they are, they can be quite rigid. Um, so that's again, a really curious place to see where process means process and it doesn't always work. You know, I, I've been working with some clients where um, their processes have been about establishing, you know, uh, Financial metrics really early on. And actually, that's highly appropriate in some contexts for some customers. For others, it was less appropriate. I mean, it was actually becoming a frustration to them. So learning, again, learning from these insights about where to flex the sales process is, is really important. Yes. Again, I'm trying to just, yes. I'm not going to interrupt or add to that. How often do you find, see if I can ask this in a way that is clear, instead of just wandering all over the place, you talk to the salespeople and as individual, let's say there's five sales reps on the team, they're more or less traveling in the same direction, but they're taking different sets of roads to get there. They have their own individual process. Then you speak with the sales manager, sales leader, sales executive, whoever it might be, and they say, this is the process we follow, which yeah. probably intersects with those other five processes in some place, but likely isn't the same. Is there particular work that you've done or successes you've seen to help make those changes and get those more aligned so those companies can be more consistently successful? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And this is, this is why, um, this is why when I go into these engagements, the the sponsorship for me from the sales organization has to come senior. So so it's it's got a chief revenue officer, it, or, or or it could sometimes it's CFO, could be COO, could even be CEO. It has to be someone senior. So they've got the the uh, the ability to make those changes to understand. And look, the reality is. 
these are, if not, they may not be mature organizations. They may be some of the people I work with are startups selling comparatively low value uh, deals, but they are mature people, they're sophisticated people. You wouldn't, uh, my clients wouldn't come to someone doing the work I do unless they were open to making change. It's kind of pointless, right? Why would you have someone looking for change, looking to come back and say, here's some great stuff you didn't know that's great. By the way, here's some stuff that you might need to change. And some of that stuff you might need to change could be a bit inconvenient. You know, this idea of inconvenient truth is kind of, well, it may not be what you wanted to hear, but it is what your customers think. So, so, People have to be my my customers, my sponsors have to be open, and they are open to the concept that what they hear is what they hear. What I bring back is is as we mentioned earlier, is you know, perception is reality. So this is facts from a customer perspective. Now they can choose what they do with that when they have that information, and and sometimes the right choice might be we we listen to it, we've heard, we're not going to act on it quite yet. Maybe they want to get some more data. Maybe they've got some other plans that are going to address those things that have come up. But nine times out of 10, uh, uh, my customers in the sales organizations are highly responsive to what they hear. These are professional folks who want to do a great job. And now they've got some more information, some more tools to help them do a, a, a better job. So whether it's in terms of process change or individual performance or individual uh, uh, um, customized sales approach, People seem to be very keen to hear what their customers think. And they should be. Like, as pragmatic as I think I can make it, we try to make this the best decision possible based on the information we had available at the time. So not just sure. more information, but higher quality information should lead to better decisions. And then the scope of what you're talking about should create better partnerships, longer lasting customer relationships, more problem solved greater outcomes for the buyers yeah. as well. Yeah. And, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's an add to that, which is sometimes when, when I'm engaged to do my work, it's because um, the sales organization kind of, they want to make a change. They know that they're pretty confident that they want to make some kind of improvement, but they don't necessarily have the evidence to go and make the case. So, you know, my argument is, the strongest evidence you can get is what a customer tells you. So, so getting that evidence, you know, I work, I work with a, um, uh, uh, great salesperson, uh, recently who had, she had, uh, she was running a, a large campaign. It was kind of a, you know, very visible within your organization and very important to her career. And, she took a very courageous decision early on in the sales in her sales process that she would deliberately frustrate the buying process because because she felt that the 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 buyer hadn't quite understood what the power of what they could be buying they hadn't quite got the solution in quite right and she wanted to bring some fresh thinking to that so you know with with her potential customer's best interest at heart she she broke the process and she took a bit of a binary call, which is she she went back to the potential customer and said, I'm not, I'm not going to participate in the process as you set it out, but I'd love to help you fix your problem. And if you're willing to engage with me in a different way, then 
you know, I'm here to help. If not, then I'm going to respectfully withdraw. Now, that was a, you know, the easy choice for her would have been to just stick to the process and try and slug it out with everyone else. Uh, and she may or may not have been successful. Her, her assessment was that wasn't the way to do it. And she took a, she took the decision to frustrate the process, completely changed the buying approach, and she ended up being successful. Right? Now, why do I tell that story? I tell that story because that was a particularly courageous move on her part. And it was really, really helpful for her and for the organization she works for to understand the effect that had on the buyer. So when I interviewed the buyer, yeah, of course, their story is they were really frustrated at the start because they didn't, they had a, a potential supplier who wasn't going by the process, who was stepping outside processes and all these things. But actually, their observation at the end was they were so pleased that it happened and they'd learned a lot and they got a richer solution as a result. That's a great example. Moving forward in that direction of what you've learned from the procurement side, the buyers that you speak with on behalf of your clients. What are some of the important, consistent takeaways that you hear that if sales representatives or sales organizations did more of these, they should be more successful over time? Yeah. Well, there's going to be no surprises in these, right? Because, because this is and I'm conscious this is so easy to say, but sometimes it's very hard to do. So the, the, the consistent themes are um, to salespeople, just I, I'm not going to say forget your sales process because uh, that wouldn't endear me to, uh, to my customers. But um, I'm going to say understand that your sales process is there as a tool. It's not the rule. Um, and certainly, don't, as a salesperson, don't let your process dictate something that's contrary to the needs of your customer. And I, uh, you know, and I say that that's a, it's easy for me to say. I know in, in some organizations that's a difficult thing to do, but so often I see language, I see activity, I see process be driven by salespeople that is not necessarily counter to what the customer needs, but just it isn't necessarily in the right sequence, not in the right timing. So that's a thing. I think um, I think there's another thing which I see, which is uh, really listen to the client. So not not just listen to what you need to hear for your qualifications or to further your own aims, but really listen to what's going on. You know, stuff that would be uh, uh, um, instinctive for you, Michael, given your career and your and your expertise. But for some folks, it is something that. Yeah, me included. We have to work at this stuff, right? I have to work to, to really dig under, underneath what a customer is saying. So, take the time to really dig underneath. Um, I think there's something about. Um, sometimes there's a there's a uh, there's a mismatch of styles as well within sales teams. You know, sometimes the feedback I get is, and I'll just pick some examples. This could be the other way around, but sometimes I get feedback like, "Oh, yeah, the." The first bit of the buying experience was so good and it was so helpful. We got to the negotiation; it was terrible. Or, or sometimes it was, uh, it was really, really difficult to to get the information we needed, and they made it so hard, and they seemed to be so protective on what we wanted, and we wanted to have a trial, and they wouldn't let us do it. But when we got to the negotiation, it was so easy; they're just so easy to do business with. 
So that's a thing that that is frustrating to, to buyers, but also causes a level of discomfort. Because if they're having that experience in the buying process, of course, buying is just the start to actually being a customer, right? So if it's like if it's difficult in the buying process, wow, what's it going to be like when I'm an actual customer? And I might be locked into the supplier for the next five years. So there's a, there's, a, there's some things to look out for, I think. I think those are all great call-outs. The, if the very easiest, don't make it hard for people to give you their money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I would love to go back. You mentioned working on some of those listening and observation skills. Yeah. And I'd love to ask you about that. To be completely transparent, I had to do that as well. And I still do that. And if you ask my wife, I probably need to learn a lot <laughs> more. Um, but for me, I mean, I can go all the way back. I won't take people too far back, but you know, even some of the earlier roles I had pre prior to my investigative career, there were elements of listening and observation that I didn't realize at the time in some of those. But when I look back at the team at Wicklender Zalowski that I was with, almost always when we got called in to participate in an investigation, which for us meant interrogation, we weren't actually doing the digging. We were there to talk. We were there to have conversations with people or the cases had multiple suspects, no evidence. Everybody had already been interviewed. That was probably weeks or months ago. We're coming in to try to salvage this thing. So literally I need to engage with somebody in a way. So they give me what I need to get the truth. I'm going to have a plan when I get there, but I literally need them to tell me what I need to do to get them to tell me the truth. So it, it sounds kind of funny, but having conversations with people that wanted nothing to do with me <laughs> and not just socially, professionally <laughs> taught me a whole yeah. lot about listening and observing. So there, I mean, there's an ongoing education there as well. I'm curious for you, what are some of the techniques you use or tools you've developed in order to create that listening ability in yourself? Wow. You know, it's, it's, uh, I unashamedly take the best from the best. So I, I've made it. I've been very fortunate, Michael. I've, I've had the opportunity to work with some very, very efficient, interesting people. And I, you know, you get that opportunity. I just, I just learn whatever I can. There are some notable, um, notable examples, which I'll, I'll highlight. I had, I had the opportunity to become uh, an advisor to a small business, uh, now a growing business. Um, set up by uh, um, ex-human uh, military intelligence folks. So people with a very, very, very cool, extraordinary, extraordinary background and, and um, completely dislocated my expectations of what people in that kind of role are all about. I, I had the stereotype image of those types of people and nothing could be further from the truth. So... Just just working for a number of years alongside people with that kind of experience, uh, I just I just learned so much, uh, and the same is true with you know other people I've met. So journalists, people in in the medical profession, law enforcement, whatever it may be, there's never a conversation I have where I don't take away something, you know that 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 I learned. and of course then there's the then there's the more kind of structured stuff. So. For example, gaining the CFI accreditation. I mean, it's a bit it's a bit out there for what I do because I'm not doing interrogations, right? Uh, and and I'm not I'm not in that world. But but I am doing interviews, right? I am interested. I am interested in creating 
the conditions for people to want to speak. I am interested in in being able to uh, read someone's emotions as best I can. So, so that so there's always something to learn from all these areas, and hence I go back to this clean language reference I made earlier, which is the thing that we're, we're studying at the moment, which is you know how to how to have conversations in a way that that takes the conversation as little as possible. I love that concept, and I can speak to not the same people and not the same experiences, of course, but the amazing opportunity to be around super smart people and take as much as we possibly can from them. And especially the ones that don't necessarily immediately line up with what we do and how we do it, because often it is those outside perspectives and ideas. And if we can hang on to them, kick in at just the right time to help us create new solutions and novel situations. And I would stand pretty confidently that you are an investigative interviewer. You're not an investigative interviewer in the criminal sense. I bet you could do quite well in it based on what you've shared. Um, but you are absolutely an investigative interviewer because you are you spend m- much of your time investigating somebody's experience and situation. Yeah, for sure. They gain information from them that other people are then going to make decisions based upon. That's what we did. That's what my friends and former teammates still do. That is investigative interviewing in its truest form. So, yes, and you probably didn't need to learn all those American case laws to get your yeah. <laughs> CFI designation. Those will likely add zero value to you whatsoever <laughs> unless you end up playing trivia in Montana in a bar. Yeah. yeah. But a lot of the concepts that you did study apply absolutely directly to the conversations that you have. And I love the phrase that you used creating the experience they need in order to share the information that we require and developing the tools to get there. It's a spectacular approach and mindset to help create the success that you've had. Yeah. Thank you. And you're right. I didn't need to know about the sixth amendment or, uh, and I may get this wrong, but Garrity versus New York, I think the one yeah. yeah. So, um, as long as you're well, not hey, a police officer under investigation, you don't need to know that. Yeah, it's, yeah exactly. So, um, but the, but here's the thing as well. And I kind of referred to this earlier about having having been in a really fortunate. I consider myself very fortunate in in, in many many ways. But having been being in the fortunate position of being able to do stuff that I think is fun. So, so this thing around learning uh, new techniques and honing techniques and speaking with people like you, right? I get to do this. Like not, not many people get to do this stuff, right? This is this is fun, and I'm learning, and and so for me, part of the buzz of this, yeah, there's there's the buzz of doing the interviews, which I love doing. Right? They're just it's so much fun, but there's also the buzz of getting better at my craft through learning. Now, you can learn through the kind of the textbooks, and you can learn by speaking to experts. But something I really enjoy doing is piecing together disparate bits of information from dis- different disciplines, as you referred to earlier, you're exactly right. You know, learning from someone uh, who's a nurse, you know, what are, you know, what can I learn? They're in the medical profession, they're usually completely different to me. But learning how they speak to a patient, learning how they um, allay their fears, how they gather information under stressful conditions, there's always something relevant. And even if it's just that tiny, tiny piece of information, you think, oh, that's... 
that at some point that's going to become very relevant to me. Or just, I'll just remember that because I'm going to have to use that at some point. And invariably you do. And the, and the more that stuff happens, the better we become, I think. I love it. Love it. I know you're busy. I'm trying to keep it on the clock. I feel like we could talk. One of these days, we're going to have to continue this conversation over a pint on one side of the ocean or the other. Well, we I'd have love to figure out how that. to do that. Um, but we talked about the positive side of what you what you learned from your clients. You know, what should sales professionals do more of yeah. without using specifics? I don't want to jam anybody up. Can you share a few examples on the opposite side? Maybe some of the more common or more striking mistakes might be the right word, but well-intentioned decisions that didn't have the desired outcome that we can all learn to avoid. Yeah. Well, there's, there's the obvious stuff, right? There's the obvious stuff of, uh, from a sales perspective, there's the obvious stuff of, of letting commission end of quarter drive your activity. I mean, it's just, and again, like I get it. I've been a, I've been a sales guy. I've been there. I've been on you know, commission schemes. I get it. I, I really do understand what that's like. But boy, you're going to kill your deals if if that becomes the, the overriding factor. So, but that's you know, you don't need me to to say that. Everyone knows that. I will highlight something from the other side, though. If I can, I'll, I'll try it a slightly different way, Michael. So, please, something we learned from um, from buyers. One of the things that customers can inadvertently do, and it normally is inadvertently, is they can sometimes be very prescriptive on the way they want to say the, the terms of the deal or the way they want to contract. And what's interesting talking to salespeople is the effect that has. So, so if a salesperson is selling to a customer or a prospect who they know is going to have a particularly tough stance on a particular contractual term or go make a lot of changes or be indecisive or those types of things, They'll factor that into the deal. And why wouldn't they? Well, that's their job. So, so, and I think some buyers might not appreciate the effect that can have, how, how profound that effect can have, can be. So, so, you know, as a salesperson, when I do the interviews internally first and you hear a salesperson say, oh, yeah, well, I, you know, I put another 5% on the price because I know what these guys are like. You know, oh, wow, that's, that's actually really important because. You're baking in a premium on price that you, perhaps you didn't need to because, because actually this is a, an inconsequential term from a buyer perspective, but somehow it's got in the middle of all this and it's not going to get unraveled in the normal buyer-seller conversation. So, so I think there's learnings always around that comes out of this stuff. There have to be. There absolutely have to be. I love this. We're going to have to find some time to continue this conversation, maybe do another episode a couple months from now. There's so much that we didn't dive into, different listening techniques, questioning techniques, examples from yeah. the conversations you've had. There's still so much meat left on the bone. I highly recommend for people, not just in the UK, but especially here in the United States who are interested in connecting with you to do so and to ask you questions and to learn more. For the people that might be interested in learning more from you or engaging with you, if it's appropriate, where should they go? How can they find you? Okay. Thank you, Michael. So uh, LinkedIn, and you'll find me, Graham Drew, Cognis Consulting, C-O-G-N-I-S, Cognis Consulting. So LinkedIn is the place to get me. And, and whether, if you just want to, if you're a potential customer, that's great. If you just want to chew the fat about this type of stuff, I, I love it. This is 
it's my job, but it's also my hobby. So um, I'm open to connection. Please, please uh, reach out. Fantastic. And I will make sure all the links are in the show notes as well. So everybody's got those. I can't thank you enough for being here, especially with the time zones and lining it all up. Thank you so very much. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. You shared so much value and so many different perspectives and ideas in such a short time. I really, really appreciate you being here today. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. It's been a, a real privilege to be here. Thank you very much. Stay safe, take care. And I'm serious. Let's let's keep these conversations going. I look forward to keep keeping it alive and open. Great. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Graham, thank you so much. What a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today and to share so many stories, examples, and teaching points. I really, really do appreciate it. Everything we talked about today applies to both sides of that business coin, sales and procurement, to developing stronger relationships, being more self-aware, being better investigative interviewers, doing a better job in our family and personal conversations. Thank you so much. And Graham, you're right about so many things, especially the strongest evidence is what the customer tells us. What a great line, Graham. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really do appreciate it. Before we go anywhere, we want to make sure we thank our sponsors on the way out. Once again, Humantel, head over to humantel.com and please enter the code in Quasim25 for 25% off all of their self-paced online training. I promise you, once you start taking the training, you will learn to see things that you can't unsee when it comes to understanding how people's emotions change in real time and how identifying that can help us be much quicker in developing rapport, building credibility, understanding where they are, and navigating emotional conversations together. Of course, Emotional Intelligence Magazine at ei-magazine.com for their ever-growing library of emotional intelligence resources from books to articles to blogs to podcasts, interviews, training programs, and beyond. And of course, head over to certifiedinterviewer.com for the International Association of Interviewers. See if membership in the organization and all of their available resources are right for you and your team. And of course, if you're interested, please see if you qualify for the Certified Forensic Interviewer designation. And if that is what is best for you, either in your current or next stage of your investigative interviewing career. We really do appreciate everybody being here and listening once again. Thank you very much. Please do all the things the algorithms ask us to do. Please like the program. Please share the program. Please comment on the program. Please subscribe to the program. We really do appreciate it. Thank you very much. And of course, leave your critical feedback. We'd love to hear. What do you like? What would you like to hear more of? What would you like to hear less of? What can we continue to do or do different as we're always adapting and looking to improve what we do here? Once again, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Thank you to our sponsors for making it happen. Graham, thank you so much for the conversation. Please stay safe, take care of each other, and we'll see you next time.